0: Hey, it's your host, Chrissy Costa, and today's podcast is the final installment of 52 Founders in London. Joining me today is Vivian Chan, co founder and CEO of Sparrow, a scientific discovery tool that combines human and artificial intelligence to help you track science in real time. She comes equipped with a PhD and has an innate curiosity that is downright contagious. It was great to learn more about the vision behind Sparrow and to hear why Vivian thinks London creates the perfect hub for innovation. But enough from me, it's time to hear from Vivian herself. Shack 15. Shack 15, the data science hub in Shoreditch. Um, yeah. And funnily enough, I am doing three founder interviews in London, and none of you are British. Oh, really? <laughs> I am British, actually. Oh, are British?
1: Australian.
0: Okay, you're British. Okay, that yeah. makes me feel
1: better. Because um, I was like, <laughs> one girl was from? Polish, and then okay.
0: uh, the guy I just did was a diplomat. I grew up everywhere, all over the world, so, you know, in Japan. And I was like, all right, well, this is... I don't it shows how international London is. Yeah.
1: I think London is very multidisciplinary in all regards, whether it be nationalities or actually people. Yeah, exactly. Um, great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your company? Yeah. So um, Sparrow is a discovery engine um, and our vision is to democratize scientific knowledge and disrupt the way that current R&D is done. I really want to accelerate the pace at which science is currently innovating, which mm-hmm. is quite slow. <laughs>
0: so how did you come across this idea?
1: Um, I didn't really have an idea. I had a problem. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and the problem happened already when I was in venture capital. So right after my undergraduate, I was in venture capital for a little bit before I came over to my PhD um in australia and uh there i was already looking at a lot of life science type investments coming out of the mm-hmm. commercialization arm of the universities and having to really understand and analyze what you know how is this research or this potential drug an- another best cancer therapy mm-hmm. what is the ip around it what is the current landscape in terms of academic research but also in the patent research And I found it really hard to be able to, you know, A, know what the keywords are, then try to find the right things, and then B, a lot of the research is hidden behind paywalls. Um, And then even if you do pay uh, and have subscription to the paywall, thirdly, it's written so technically, it's really hard to to decipher unless you're an actual expert in Mm -hmm. that area. And I was just, you know, an undergraduate in drug design delivery. So um, I, I felt like I was a bit way over my head. But I had to go and try to learn all the stuff and try to go around. And and it was a very deep steep learning curve. But then I just thought, you know, actually PhDs, they wouldn't have the same problem. Um, but then when I ended up doing my... Uh, PhD in structural X-ray crystallography at, at Cambridge. Oh what, sorry, what was that? <laughs> X-ray crystallography. Okay. Um a form of biochemistry. All right, and so was... it was it was quite fun because actually I was trying to um, crystallise proteins oh, wow. in very high concentrations and they make really pretty crystals and then we take them to the synchrotron and shoot X-ray beams through them. And then through the diffraction patterns, try to remodel how the protein will look in three dimensions. So just
0: a little bit different than your job today? Uh, just a little
1: bit. <laughs> 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 lots okay. of lots of unknowns. Okay. the
0: same. <laughs> um, so it sounds like, it, are you making this product for academics or for people who just want to learn? For everyone, citizen for science. Right.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, at the very yeah. end of the day, it would be amazing if, for example, my grandmother could understand cutting-edge arthritis research in her own language. Yeah, that'd be great. Because um, taxpayers, especially in, around UK and Europe, taxpayers are funding the research. Mm-hmm. And yet they have no idea how to access and understand the research.
0: Now, how do you turn this into a company rather than just a website, though, or something like very non-profit oriented, things like that?
1: So actually around 2% of the global GDP in trillions is invested in R&D. <laughs> oh, really? So globally, there's loads of money being poured into, for example, if you think about Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. If you think about Tesla, if you think all the way from automotive to pharmaceuticals and to the amount of drugs that is being researched and developed right now and that, that those are very commercial um, and all the ways to hardware, Samsung and Apple and all that stuff happening right now, that all is research and development and actually everyone wants to be able to understand what is the cutting edge research that's happened to this day for mm-hmm. me to innovate. And so once I've been able to innovate, then I can actually file for a patent or then commercialize to make it into an actual product. Mm -hmm. Um, And so actually, there's a lot of companies right now around the world who are investing trillions um, into cutting edge science. And yet the current way in which a lot of the scientists actually innovate is just so backwards. Mm -hmm. The whole industry is backwards. And a lot of it is in these kind of unit values of research articles.
0: So who would you be charging then? Because I imagine you wouldn't want to charge your grandma for learning about our
1: <laughs> No, no, exactly. So we're going down a B2B route. Uh-huh. Um, so we are tackling um, actually helping R&D companies uh, be thought leaders in the space.
0: And how do you get the content up there?
1: actually now have over 48 million pieces of scientific content, We're wow. one of the leaders of the world now, and especially the latest in science. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been very fortunate enough to be uh, working with great people like the British Library and a few other publishers, so we actually have partnerships there. Mm-hmm. But we also have built a proprietary content importing system, so we can check over 45,000 unique sources every mm-hmm. hour.
0: Wow. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I was going around the site a little bit, and the one I was, um, I feel like I'm overwhelmed by how much I wanted. Just I could, It's like a Wikipedia. I could get yeah. into it for so long.
1: Oh, that's great. What yeah. were you looking at?
0: Uh, the first one I was looking at was the Fermi paradox.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, because I
0: actually thought about this a lot, and uh, I also watch some documentaries on space, and then I get my or listen to TED talks, and then yeah. I'm begging all my friends to talk about space with me. No one, no one wants to. And I was. I was just talking to. You, I think. Two weeks ago, my podcast, I had one of my former professors, and we were talking about how we're at the University of Chicago's amazing school, but there's no cross between the med students Mm -hmm. and the business students, and I feel like Mm -hmm. something like this would be perfect because there's so many... Yeah. places to innovate in the space but it's so hard for us to all learn about what's going on. Exactly um, yeah. and a
1: lot of it I think innovation happens in cross sectors yeah. and cross disciplines and I think that's where really things can pick up and pace mm-hmm. in terms of who has a problem who has the right funding body for it right. and then you find the right um, scientists or individuals it, whether it would be an economics person with a designer, mm-hmm. uh, with a scientist, you yeah. know, and then that go about solving. I think there was a really cool. I think it's the Helsinki Challenge or something like that, and they actually are working to solve UN problems.
0: So, do you ever hear about stories where people connect like that from Sparrow?
1: Yeah, so we've actually. Sparrow, had to, sorry. Sparrow, I it yeah, Sparrow. like the bird. Um, with the RHO being the yeah. kind of like government row. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we have some really random, different kind of use cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, initially, even in the. Uh, right now, we're targeting PhDs and postdocs only because human experts, or rather, we value the currency of expertise. And so actually human experts combined with artificial intelligence is the solution of Sparrow altogether, which helps with citizen scientists later on. But we started to find journalists on our sites. We actually also randomly had someone said that they actually ended up preparing for some of their um, jobs interviews Mm -hmm. by reading on Sparrow. Oh, wow. (laughs) That was something that we never even thought of.
0: Can anyone generate content? How do you vet the content on the site
1: yeah so that's a great uh, question because that is one that we're in the scheme of fake news right now it's mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> something that we are approaching as a company so at the moment especially when all the content that we're um, importing and displaying is research articles and so that's peer reviewed um, mm-hmm. journal publications from one of the to- um, one of the journal publishers however we're starting to pull in patents already um, and then in the future especially in the pinboards uh, we will be allowing for users to be uploading third-party content. Okay. However, we will be having a, a very uh, thorough process in terms of verification and validation. Kind Yeah. I so, what's your space right? actually? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but let's go
0: back to you. So we're gonna do. Um, Kind of learn more about your background. So, where did you grow up? You said you're Australian and British. Okay, yeah, I'm very curious. So,
1: um, my family is originally from Hong Kong. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and so part of when we were part of the British um, colony, and then uh, I moved to Australia very, very young, and so I pretty much grew up there mm-hmm. um, on the Gold Coast. So by the beach, beautiful sunshine, kind of different to today. Just right? a little <laughs> different. <than today. laughs> just a little <laughs> bit of sunshine today. So that's yeah. already a plus. There's some vitamin D. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I I grew up playing a lot of sport, a lot of outdoors, um, loved childhood there. And then I did an undergraduate in drug design and um, development Mm -hmm. at University of Queensland. Um, And then I networked my way into a VC role there. Um, And then through a bit of serendipity and luck and stuff, um, I was just curious and I I found some really interesting projects. And then one thing led to the next, I ended up getting offers from Oxford and Cambridge to do a PhD. Um, and I did an extra crystallography PhD mm-hmm. at Cambridge, um, and that's been one of the best um, times of my life in terms of just the people that you meet, um, but also just the setting in terms of the opportunities. Yeah. But it was also a great little ticket for me because I love to explore Europe. right? And, and Australia is very, very far from the rest of the world. Um, so it was a nice excuse for me to kind of be based here and then travel and go to a different culture within two or three hours on the plane. Right. And so how did you make the leap? You know, growing up in Australia, you're
0: outdoors all the time. Where does the interest in science come from?
1: So interest in science is everywhere around us, actually, because everything around it is science, right? Mm-hmm. The air that we breathe, the diet, all that kind of um, everything that... It, Um, In terms of uh, the day-to-day, I think, was really interesting in how we did not really know about all that skin cancer stuff, especially growing up in Australia. It's like, okay, great outdoors, always put on um, sunscreen. Why? Oh, because we have a massive ozone hole right above (laughs) Australia. And you're like, well, what is ozone? But, you know, there's just that kind of everything happens for a reason, but we never, uh, maybe I was always quite curious as a kid, Mm -hmm. Um, probably had to be a previous scientist, but it was very, I always asked why, and um, I think that was kind of the reason why I ended up in drug design delivery, in biotechnology, and I was curious about also the intersection between science and business, commercialization, and why I did a biotech degree, and then there's always been two drivers kind of that has depicted all my decision making in life so far, which Mm -hmm. is number one. Am I always learning? And building a startup, even now, is every single day I'm learning. You know, throwing the deep end, uh, doing different a whole way. bunch of stuff yeah. very differently, and the startups keep scaling in a different way. Um, and then, number two, is making an impact in the world. Um, and I definitely thought that, you know, going to the PhD, that was a great step. And one that I realized how I was trying to make an impact, but mm-hmm. also one that I realized early stage academic research just wasn't quite there for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I
0: love that. that. The always learning is something I've asked myself pretty much my entire life. But I don't think until I don't think I became that introspective on it until my 20s. I think I just always loved learning. And then when you're thinking about what
1: career you want to have, yeah. it's like, where can I learn the most? Yeah. Um, so and I didn't want like to be constrained about what I should be learning. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to just learn. So I you're the something.
0: first PhD. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, it's not typical for a PhD to then become an entrepreneur. Maybe sometimes, but you know more. You hear more about either in college or together or going to get your master's or mba or something yeah. like that so did you when you were getting your phd were you still interested in this business intersection or did you want to go and do somewhere um actually i don't even know what you would do have to it
1: yeah no actually during the phd i think that was the beauty of cambridge mm-hmm. um And I think Cambridge is a bit more, I think, what they call contained chaos, which is kind of what is promoted (laughs) to be the best ingredients for startups, right? And I think that's why in the U.S. they do it really, really well. And even, like, some of the PhDs who come from you are like, oh, I've already tried, like, five different startup ideas. And as opposed to the U.K., Europeans are like, oh, it's my first. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's why Cambridge was quite good because – I was then uh, pulled into this Q-Tech thing, and Q-Tech was very much business. And actually, it was a sister organization that started with MIT. Mm. So all of a sudden, I got seen as actually being the president of managing a team of 50 unpaid volunteers, which meant there's a lot of people management, and I had, there was a hierarchy, existing hierarchy. So there was myself, then there was a, you know, vice presidents and all that kind of stuff, innovation, exec director level, and there's five different teams underneath me. And each had their own vice presidents, and I had to, you know, actually have a sponsorship team who had to raise money, there was content team, and there was a whole bunch of exercise of um, teaching myself how to be a CEO, actually, mm-hmm. inherently, while I was doing my third year PhD. Yeah, so time management and hands-on experience, I think, counts for a lot. Um, and so I think that intersection of having that interest of commercialization of science was there because there was the flexibility to do so in an ecosystem like Cambridge. One reason I
0: am really attracted to London, I think, coming from I, you know, I'm from New York and I came from the Valley to Chicago, so I'm sort of hitting all the big cities in the U.S. And there are some schools of thoughts where people think. You know, you can start in Europe, but you have to eventually go to the U.S., especially for startups. But I love the diversity that we were saying in London. I think having a diverse range of industries not actually just tech actually could lead to a lot more innovation especially because you can learn about them Mm -hmm. and in San Francisco it was like everyone you know works in tech yeah (laughs) which across industries but no one you know not people worked in the arts or not people I
1: knew Um, so I find that really interesting yeah and also a lot of it also comes from your friends Mm -hmm. just your peers as well the day-to-day conversation that randomly sparks a great innovation but also I think culturally Mm -hmm. culturally people are very different and diverse in London and I love that because I think it's very important even if I think about it for my team in terms of actually being able to get out of the ordinary or think outside the box it actually works really really well when you've got a cross disciplinary and cross diverse team Mm -hmm. people from all different cultures have different ways of living and different ways of thinking and then actually encouraging that in a very harmonious way in a setting that they can apply it onto a very big problem solving and a big potential vision is something that I've seen worked really, really well, um, not just for Sparrow, but also in Y Cambridge and also some of the entrepreneurship groups here in London. I think it's it's amazing because people are from everywhere.
0: Yeah. I feel like you guys would do really well in uh, the Startup Weekend. I actually interviewed the founder of Startup Weekend where it's like the 48 hours you get together to solve some problems. Um, And a few companies I know came out of that, but I think that is the whole idea of putting them together and seeing what happens. Yeah. So now we talked a little bit about america um, but what about Australia? You know, what do you see happening there for the tech scene versus something like London, do you think, is that why you didn't decide to go back, Do you like the diversity here, um, mm-hmm. especially given your time in BC in Australia?
1: Yeah, so no, that's a good question, because I think uh, it just happened. My opportunities happened here in London, or rather Cambridge, and then it led us to London. Um, but um, University of Queensland just actually, um, I, ha- I had the privilege of flying back over Christmas, actually December. Um, and um, we're just giving a number of talks there at the mm-hmm. University of Queensland and also talking to the um, vice chancellors and the deans of the university now about entrepreneurship. Um, and actually, there is a lot going on in Australia down under. They're, they're attracting... Top <laughs> t- <laughs> attracting top talents, especially um, the VC. Mm-hmm. Now they actually have a whole other level of c- capital... That wasn't there when I was in venture capital. Yeah. So even when I was there, it was very much a seed type VC, which those major shareholders were the three universities and a pension fund. Um, but actually, for a lot of the life sciences stuff, we had to, you know, go to a US lead investor, right? Because we just don't have that kind of capital. Um, but however, now you're seeing, especially in tech startup world, you're seeing some really great caliber, really experienced entrepreneurs. Who have been internationally you know um, trained or rather you know they've worked in multiple different big startups moving back to australia yeah and i think texas just
0: posted they they opened up australia too yeah exactly there's a
1: lot of investments now actually a lot of the big caliber investors at vc are investing in australia Mm. because they also have different industries yeah um and they are also experts in other industries that have a Really lucrative business model and a lucrative market that actually a lot of people won't see if you actually went in out there doing mining, or for example.
0: So, I realized when you talk about Australia, I forgot to ask you what brought your family out there? What do your parents do for a living?
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, my parents are now both in the education space, mm-hmm. funny enough, and my grandparents, actually, all of them were in publishing. Oh, really? So, there is some. <laughs> until I think last year Uh but that might be some something in my family destiny to be yeah yeah, and And then my dad also actually studied at Queens Mary okay um, did computer science Um, and then so he was in computer science and engineering and then he moved over to be a teacher and then ended up um, becoming principal, and then running schools. So he went from a very technical career um, to an education career to a kind of med- management-type role. Mm-hmm. And then... But he was very... Well, it seems
0: very interesting, kind of on par with what you were doing there. Very yeah, technical. I think so, and, yeah. In a yeah. different
1: scope, yeah, definitely. And he has always been very entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I was fortunate enough to be able to be exposed to that and the VC. But as a kid, I would always and bouncing ideas, and then even now, um, I would randomly give, rec- you know, a random call one day, and I'm like, what are you up to? And it's like, oh, I'm just counting footfall. I am potentially put- might be buying the- this in someplace, but I'm just double-checking the numbers. <laughs> so, when you were younger, walking your parents, um, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was your, the first thing? Um, so, actually, that was your question, because I did think, um, the first thing I wanted to be was to be an astronaut, so... Yeah, I did love space, and I love space really, really. uh, I don't know. I had something fascinating about stars. Well, you're curious. I was, yeah, I was always very, very curious. And then I think um, then I got into a bit of fashion because my mom was actually in fashion first. Okay. So my mom was a merchandiser, and then she ended up in education. So now she teaches. Kids, um, Kindergarten kids English. Okay. Um, so, but I was like, in Australia? Oh, no, in uh, Hong Kong. I was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now she teaches kids in inter- international schools mm. um, English. So, but yeah, then when I was growing up, there was a bit of a fashion stint because my mom was in fashion at that point. And then I think I remember at one point I said, no, I'm going to be a businesswoman. A businesswoman. Well, yeah. I had no idea why and at what point what what that meant, but I was like, Businesswoman seems cool. Curiosity and fashion, you know. Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, you should actually listen to some of my other ideas, which is, you know foldable high heels and yeah. I mean, it's still very <laughs> practical but no one's really cracked a sexy foldable high oh, heels
0: oh yeah that <laughs> is a we have a formal coming up and I need to find a comfortable pair is my what I was searching for um, so before you also mentioned your co-founders and now what do you think what were you looking for when you found them besides the fact that you know, the machine learning obviously that mm-hmm. was a great fit but maybe from a personality aspect
1: yeah even from the personality aspect it had to be very complimentary mm-hmm. um, and I think Neela and myself worked really well in that regard because of the way that we think and also in the way that we, the kind of roles that we like to play um, and so, so therefore it was very kind of like um, I'm much more of a, I guess plus we were trying to solve something with science and I had a PhD in science so it made a lot more sense for me to actually articulate the problem on the day-to-day level, um, and then I had a bit more of the business background, so I ended up naturally taking on the CEO type, much more external facing Mm -hmm. roles, um, but also I think previously, um, a lot of the relationship happened also because I was trying to learn how to code, and through that I could understand how, um, was thinking, Uh because coders and, you know, especially in machine learning, you think in a different way to how, um, maybe a scientist uh, but also as a commercial person thinks is quite different and I think I started to have that appreciation of the so logic.
0: Fun. I would think a scientist would think in a similar way in the sense that for a coder you have these, I mean you have your requirements but then you have a like hypothesis about how it's going to work and then you kind of test it and then you iterate. So <laughs> yeah. that's probably why I
1: actually enjoyed programming yeah. <laughs> when I started learning and so I actually understand what things had to be done in certain ways But then, only until I started programming as well did I understand how I can't just say I need X solve by two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's so much unknown and so much about just actually testing and the bugs and all the fixing and all that kind of stuff. Which then, yes, makes me think it's much more like a scientific experiment. Um, but I guess initially when I was coming in, like I'm going to build a startup, we were thinking commercially minded. I wasn't thinking like that, right. um, especially in terms of how does tech fit uh, as a puzzle piece in the organisation of a business. I wasn't thinking, oh, okay, scientific experiments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then until I actually did some of the, you know, uh, the the coding, but also then had a better understanding of the logic process, but also meant that had a better understanding of potentially how I can communicate with the team better. Got it. Um, and I think that was very, very important, especially for a tech startup, and not being a techie myself, um, having to understand the personalities, but also the lo- um, thought process that they, they go about using for problem solving is super, super critical for, and also then teaching the other people in that are, that is not so tech focused, why you know we can't stick to a yes, it's going to be done in a mm-hmm. weeks, et cetera. Right. Um, how does everyone fit in that puzzle, I think, is mm-hmm. quite interesting. So you're bridging that gap between
0: kind of the technical, because you're referring to it, and then people that would need to run the business side.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I think having appreciation for both, I think I have been quite lucky that I've been able to kind of do both, mm-hmm. and I think maybe that was why I was always curious yeah. <laughs> from the start, and that's why I did biotech. Um, but that's worked out really well so well, far. Well, like, the
0: fashion astronaut feels to me very dual-brained. So. <laughs>
1: I'm um, sure there's going to be a range on that
0: soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just some last-minute fun questions. Um, so what was the, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten as an entrepreneur?
1: Um, just do it. Just do it, Yeah, <laughs> Literally the Nike Just slogan. do it, just okay.
0: Do it. I like that, short and sweet. Uh, and
1: if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview? Oh, okay. Oh. The first thing that pops into my head is the one that probably I'm sure everyone's already talked about even Musk. Um, yeah,
0: a few people, but... For you, I think it makes sense.
1: Yes, for me, it makes sense. Space, but also I think it's also just how he's taken one project. He hasn't just taken, okay, I'm an entrepreneur, I've succeeded in X. And then he's gone off and also become an entrepreneur of all these other businesses, all these other startups first, Um, and then some of which then became Tesla. You know, and then there's the um, solo, um, solo c- right, one, solar right? cells yeah. And the solar city, and then there's a hyperloop, and there's a yeah. whole bunch of other things that I'm sure he's got his hands filled. But I think that is, to be fair, a really key essence of being an entrepreneur. I think one of my questions is how do you keep focus?
0: Or how do you learn about all these
1: industries? <laughs> for yeah. You especially. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, yeah, so there is Elon Musk, but um, I'm sure there's probably going to be. Uh, I would probably go off and try to really ask other, interview other people who then built a successful business out of their passion. Mm-hmm. So chefs. Okay. So, probably so the small, small scale, I like that. Yeah, also just because they're more relatable mm-hmm. in a sense, but also in a sense that they built something from passion and that they were good at one thing, which is cooking, but then actually to scale that into a business, and a food-fledged business, is a completely different beast. I think being naive in the very beginning, that's a little bit of my other advice. It's actually a good thing. Okay. But I had no idea what it meant to be an entrepreneur. Why well, really could you
0: talk yourself out otherwise?
1: <laughs> if I'd known how much it would take, yeah, exactly. Kind of just the, the the emotional roller coaster ride that you'll go through. Um, and just the day, the day, it's really hard work. Everyone, I think, knows that, but I don't know if people actively talk about it. Yeah. And I think that is something that maybe there's less of in a – maybe, you know, especially in places like Australia where they're trying to build up more as opposed to the U.S. where there there's a lot more experience. That people are more willing to talk about failures and mistakes. Well, no, there's still that,
0: like, killing it culture where everyone yes. needs to pretend that they're having the best day every day.
1: Exactly, which yeah. – everyone knows that you as an entrepreneur actually 80% of the time is never good so are shit yeah they're actually majoritally just uh meh and then most of the time oh was pretty shit and then you have that one day oh my gosh it's amazing um. and then everything puts it into perspective right but I think there is not enough of that ecosystem of yeah actually blatantly I think it was the founder of One Fine Stay who recently sold that recently and he was at, openly talking about it how actually you know you go to your friends and families and they're like oh they built this amazing thing how's it going how's it going and you're like yeah it's good it's good they don't really kind of <laughs> understand what it means to run a business right. or what it is that you actually do on a day day but they love you to bits so
0: you're like yeah everything's going well you're the uh, the <laughs> life of the party yeah but, but no one wants to hear about that
1: exactly you are the topic of the party and yeah yet no one will only they only want to hear about the glory days um, and then on the other side you've got your f- other people who just like your investors and your team right and it's like every day is crushing it we're crushing it it's yeah. amazing it's amazing so you go to networking parties everyone's crushing it oh my gosh if everyone's crushing it why is the stats only one out of how <laughs> how <laughs> ten make it um, and then and then yeah and then actually it for me it's actually my the the why I think one of the major reasons why I'm still here and still very very strong is because we have a really strong network, whether from Entrepreneur First, but oh. also some of the other peers that I've met as entrepreneurs, Yeah. who were, you know, we've gotten to know each other over the course of many years, and so we've got that really well-trusted network that you pick up a phone and you're like, oh my God, this is what happened. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so Just Do It, naivete Tay, and a Strong Network would be the recipe.
1: Perfect. Summed summed up
0: nicely. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, I'm going to uh, have to say goodbye. But thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah. And that's it for 52 Founders in London. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week back in the States.